0: So we do have the Baptist Catechism in view for us once again this evening. Uh, the Baptist Catechism, it was put together by particular Baptists. particular then meaning that it, it's speaking towards their view of the atonement. It's a, a definite atonement or a particular atonement, not a general one. At the time when this catechism was put together, there were basically two major groups of Baptists in existence, the particular Baptists and the general Baptists. And this is a catechism put forward by those who have a particular view of the Atonement, a definite Atonement. So what we might call them then, or what we might say, and we should probably use this term somewhat loosely, is that this is a catechism from Calvinistic or Reformed Baptists a catechism from our Baptist fathers in that specific vein of theology and doctrine. And this is the fifth edition of that catechism. It's put forth in the late 17th century, and it's based on what I would consider to be the finest human effort in systematizing doctrine for a confessional standard, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And that means, friends, that there are some assumptions that we must simply be aware of beforehand as we consider our topic for tonight, which is the fourth commandment. And the Catechism simply assumes a position on it. It assumes a position on the law of God, the perpetuity of it. The perpetuity of it, I mean the, the continuing of it and in the New Covenant era. And it assumes a position on the character of God, His holiness and His righteousness. And these topics are expressed in more detail in the Second London Confession of Faith and in summary as well in the previous questions of the Catechism that we have been going through um uh, we've had sermons on those questions and i i say all this because there's just no way that i'm going to be able to address everything concerning the fourth commandment tonight it would take weeks of sermons and whole books have been addressed on this topic but as i just said we did have uh, sermons over the past months that should be influencing the way that we're thinking about these things we should be already already biblically informed as to some of these presuppositions that are put forward in the catechism in the second london confession because as we are approaching this commandment not in a vacuum but in light of what has been said before and again we are 43 sermons into this series now and the last 18 catechism questions are specifically re- related to our question for tonight so there are some things already assumed then and i don't have time to go over all of those related points from those sermons but we do need more time for this specific commandment. And so we're breaking this specific commandment into two Sunday evening services, two sermons. And let me just say this for you now, nice and early for you. Application of the fourth commandment is going to be next week. All right. It's not tonight. <laughs> yeah, I know. We are not in the realm of specific application tonight. And I know that is where much of the debate and the confusion is with this with this commandment. And, you know, what can I do and what should not be done? That's next week when we'll attempt to think about those things. Not tonight. And so I don't want any questions later concerning application, okay? Because that'll be for next time. So be kind, y'all. We'll get there. Lord willing. And Lord willing, we'll be considering this topic again again next Sunday evening. But in two, again, two sermons, there's no way that I can address every single issue related to the fourth commandment. And of course, there are a lot of issues. Uh, Especially in our modern day, there is controversy surrounding this topic. The Sabbath, sometimes referred to as the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day, has fell on hard times over recent decades. Some people um, even think you're a legalist if you want to argue for Sabbath keeping. And we speculate as to why this is the case. Why would someone think that you're a legalist if you want to keep the Sabbath? Perhaps it's the popularity of dispensationalism. I certainly think that is a significant reason, but the reality is that the application of this doctrine, the doctrine of the fourth commandment, it has fallen on hard times even in reformed circles, not just dispensational ones. Uh, of all the commandments, this one has the most controversy associated with it, This among believing Christians, professing and believing Christians. This one is the most confused of the ten, and truthfully, the view of it, which I will put forward of the next two sermons is the most neglected of the ten. And I'm speaking again of conservative evangelical Christians here, not liberals and progressives, which you would expect to have disunity with, but conservative Bible Bible believing Christians, even Christians that would consider themselves to be Reformed or Calvinists. This is a neglected and misunderstood doctrine, even even in those circles. So if I could give a simple outline, it's this tonight we will consider what is this commandment, and next week, Lord willing, we'll consider the application of it. Tonight What is it next week? The application of it. So save those, again, hard, conscious, bearing questions for next week. The catechism actually breaks down the commandment in the format uh, that we are used to as well. Uh, With the three questions that we have before us tonight, the catechism is simply wanting to communicate what what the commandment is. I don't know if you noticed this, by the way, uh, but the first three commandments all had four questions associated with them. This one has more because it's a little bit more complex. There's six catechism questions based on this fourth commandment. And the fifth commandment uh, will have four questions associated with it. And the last five questions will all have three questions associated with it. But in each of the catechism questions, the commandment is stated first off, and the following questions are an outline of the commandment itself. There's a little bit of a break in the pattern with this commandment because of the issue of the Old Covenant being over. But next week, we'll follow the typical outline that exists in the commandment, which is it states the commandment, and it says what is required, and then it asks what is forbidden, and then it states for what reason. That outline exists in all of the commandment questions that are given um, right, right from the pages of Scripture. But nevertheless, we are wanting to do with this commandment even though there's six questions instead of four, instead of three, we're wanting to do with this commandment what we did with the previous one. So let's turn our attention to the first catechism question for tonight, since that mentions the commandment. And this is simply, uh, this is question 62 in the catechism. And it's very straightforward. In previous lessons, uh, we covered why this is the fourth commandment and not the third commandment. The answer for the question, what is the fourth commandment, is just simply a quotation of scripture, and it's from Exodus chapter 20, and it's verse 8 to 11. So the answer that it gives for question 62 is the fourth commandment is, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we're wanting to faithfully understand what the Bible teaches here. And also, we want to think, be thinking about it within the stream of thought from other Spirit-filled believers in history past. We aren't the only ones who come up to this text and, and want to, under, to understand it. There have been generations... Of men and women who desire to be faithful to Christ have had to consider this very topic that we do too. So we don't want to make the error that is popular today that says keeping the fourth commandment is legalism. We didn't do that with the other commandments. We don't want to do it with this one either. The Ten Commandments, friends, is are not legalism. Uh, they are legal and they are lawful, but they and they reveal to us the holy and righteous character of God. But they aren't legalism. Legalism should be avoided, but keeping the commandments isn't legalism. It's not legalism to keep the first commandment. The first commandment dealt with idolatry. Uh, We are instructed in it to worship nothing else, that only God is worthy of worship. And more than that, by the way, uh, it also is our motivation in a way for us to be missional. We were just praying, Pastor Nick was just praying a moment ago about thinking of people who need the gospel. Well, part of the reason why we do that is because of this first commandment. God alone deserves worship and all people must give it. Um, it's based, the, the great commission uh, that we are so familiar with in Matthew 28, especially as Baptists, it's really based on and rooted in the first commandment that God deserves worship by all um, from all people. Uh, God is the creator and his creation owes him worship. And we know this is true and are compelled even here to tell the world this truth. Even if there was no commission in Matthew 28, it would be our duty as believers to tell others of this God who is worthy of worship, who created everybody to worship him. I know the SBC is considering changing their name to Great Commission Baptist, and that's not a bad thing in and it itself, but even better, we should be first commandment Baptists. There is that God is God alone and nothing else is God or can't compare to him. We are compelled to worship him, tell others of him, and and the worship that they owe him. Uh, The second commandment is not legalism either. We are not free as Christians to worship how we want. As a matter of fact, you remember part of the testimony of Scripture that deals with people worshiping God the way they want and not the way they instructed is something that should bring terror to people who want to worship God in the way that they feel like they should. And it leads to what in some cases? It leads to death. See Ananias and Sapphira, who were fake in their worship and they withheld back from God. See Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire on the altar. See Uzzah, who maybe even just reacted out of instinct and reached out to grab the ark as it was falling and in doing so died instantly when he touched it. How did they get there? How did they get to the place where the ark was falling? Well, they weren't transporting the ark the way that God instructed them to. Think of Moses, who didn't get to enter Canaan but it was only permitted to see it, all because he took things into his own hands when he struck the rock. There's serious consequence for not worshiping the way that God wants us to worship him. So it's not it's not legalism to observe the second commandment. It's not. It is legal and it is lawful, and God regulates the worship himself. After all, we must be filled with pride, I would think, if we think we know how to worship God better than how he instructs us. So the second commandment is not legalism. Same is true for the third commandment. The third commandment is not legalism. As Christians, we bear the name of God. It's in the name, isn't it, right? We call ourselves Christians, uh, that we are bearing the name of God, and that we walk around being filled. Is that the title? What do you mean?
1: Christ isn't, like, isn't Christ a title?
0: Uh, yeah, but it's still a name. It is a name. It means Messiah. Yeah, we we still, it's still a name. So we are bearing his name. We we. we Live as people who are indwelled with the Spirit. We are united to Christ especially. We're united to Yahweh in general because he chose us before the foundation of the world. And remember what Ephesians 2.10 says. This is right after the apostle explains that we are saved um, by faith grace through faith, and it is the gift of God. It's not because of our works that we're saved. It's all the gifts, faith, grace, and salvation. Well, verse 10 in Ephesians 2 says that, uh, and it expresses that we were created in Christ Jesus, which means that we were saved in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand. And so it's not legalism to keep the third commandment. We're, so just, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to live in a certain way, bearing the name of God, bearing the name of Christ, to live in such a way that, that we don't profane the name of the Lord our God, Or any means of God revealing himself. And of course then, that must also mean that the fourth commandment is not legalism. If the first three are not, we shouldn't think that this one is legalism either. Nor are the rest of the commandments that follow this are legalism. Again, they're all legal and legality is good. It is from God. They reveal his holy character and his righteousness. But observing them is not legalism. And forgive me for having to spend a little bit of time mentioning recent commandments that we already covered. But I felt like it's the right thing to do because with this fourth commandment, people often say that it doesn't have to do with us. And that speaks to question 63 for the catechism, which which simply assumes that this fourth commandment is actually for us. So let's look really quick at the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment requires is what is required in the fourth commandment. That's question 63. And then the answer given is the fourth commandment requires the keeping holy to God one whole day in seven to be a Sabbath to himself. So the fourth commandment means something to us today. We are to keep it holy. The catechism cites two, uh, two tellings of the Decalogue, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 here. There's a slight difference between those two passages. We'll consider that later. But the level which we should be thinking now is that the fourth commandment requires something for us today. It is very common for people to say that the fourth commandment isn't for, for us in the church today. Uh, there's three reasons that people typically give for that. And so I want to think of those Negative reasons first. Um, the fourth commandment requ- has requirements for us today. It's not something that is irrelevant or is only historic or historical. It requires for us, even today, to keep one day and seven holy to God. And so it makes sense to me to, to think of this requirement in two ways. How do we keep it and why do we keep it? How do we keep it and why do we keep it? The how we'll have to deal with. That part next week in works of necessity and mercy, and I'll say I was, I'm going to save, cut this. I was going to talk about this tonight, but for time's sake, I'll cut it off. and Leave it for next week. We worship one day out of seven. In that, the Sabbath is a weekly observance, and I'll, I'll deal with that next week that still kind of fits in the how, even though that question is kind of in question sixty-three. And then um, also again with works of necessity and mercy, we'll do that next week. We'll get to it, just not tonight. And tonight we'll address, you know, why do we keep it? So yeah, so maybe the best thing to do, since I've already been saying that keeping it is not legalism, is to address three common reasons as to why people don't keep it. And then after that, we'll consider, you know, more detail why we do keep it. So there are three main reasons why some professing Christians reject the fourth commandment and why they want to jettison it, really. And the first one is that Sabbatarianism is legalism. Secondly, is that it's not repeated in the New Testament, and thirdly, that is that we are in the new covenant and not the old. So let's deal with that first one first. We've already been kind of speaking about the fact that this commandment isn't legalism. The other commandments weren't legalism either. All three of these reasons are bad reasons, and I want to show you why. And the first excuse that we're going to look at, again, is, is that some people say sabbatarianism is legalism. And of course, legalism is bad. They'll say that the fourth commandment, to adhere to what it says, is legalism for us today. But let me tell you, just like with the first three commandments, the fourth commandment, again, is not legalism. And that would mean that it is right to do the things contained in the fourth commandment, the things explained here, that we should keep it holy. To the, it's right to adhere to the spirit of the law here, as some of the specifics are specifically given within the context of an ancient civilization, namely Israel. But this is part of the law, and the law is good. Listen to what Psalm 19 says. I believe someone shared this recently as well in recent weeks or maybe i'm thinking of shepherds conference my mind is a mush from all of that as well but if you have your bible look at psalm 19 and we read verse 7 to 11 okay this is speaking of god's law here And we're thinking about this claim that some people say the fourth commandment for us to keep is legalism, but it's simply what it is is God's law. So let's see what the Bible says about the law of God. Psalm 19, verse 7. There we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, And keeping them there is great reward even. And I hope that you see the inherent goodness of it. There's no legalism here. This, The law of God is glorifying to the Lord God. And it's good for us. Speaking of that, what would that reward be mentioned in verse 11? It's not salvation, right? If so, that would be legalism. But that's not the relationship we have to the law. Nor is that the relationship that scripture teaches us about the law. So really quick as an aside here, what is legalism? Uh, Nick Batzig defines it well. We should be clear about what legalism is, because part of the I think part of the reason why people think the fourth commandment is legalism, sab, keeping the sabbath is legalism, is because they don't really understand what legalism is. And so Nick, Batz, Nick Bat, Batzig defines it like this: He says, "Legalism is by definition an attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. It is to trust in anything other than Christ and His finished work for one standing before God." That. Would be legalism, and if we think that keeping the law rewards us with salvation, well then we are legalists. you might you know that would be adding to the work that Christ has done. Now, you might hear these fancy words among Christians sometimes neo uh, neo nomenism, neonomism, and antinomianism. neonominism means new law. it means that you're creating or holding to some law god's God's law doesn't require. Antinomianism means no law. It means you're neglecting something that God requires. Both are simply legalism. Both are ways of asserting ourselves above what God has said by either adding to it or by adding via the way of subtraction. You understand what I mean by that, right? This is the idea of antinomianism where you say, oh, we don't have to do that. But well, what you're doing is you're creating a new law that says you don't have to do what God's law says, right? So it's like adding by way of subtraction and making... Uh, you know, a new law saying that God doesn't care about it. So the reward here of Psalm 19 would not be some version of legalism. But the reward here is simply that we would glorify and worship God. That the point of the law is not that our life will be better if we do it. Although it may very well be true, or it may not. I mean, the Lord's will be done. But the point of the law, the law's point is that it reveals to us God's character and we worship him through it. When we have been born again, when we know, because the Spirit has applied the new birth to us, that worshiping God is what we were created for even. And so again, the, the catechism is simply assuming what the Second Lemon Baptist Confession has already said about the scriptures, and that is that there are three divisions of the law, three uses of the law. There is the moral, civil, and ceremonial law. The moral law is that revelation of God in which the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is a summary of. It reveals the righteousness and the holy character of, and the nature of, and the will of God to all of humanity. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. The civil law were faithful applications of the moral law for Israel, specifically within the Old Covenant. They serve as a basis even for many of our laws in countries today. And they're a good guide for countries to to take and who want to implement a civil structure that would be honoring to God. And they served, along with the ceremonial laws, as a standard that Christ would meet. So that he could redeem us from the curse of the law. But with the closing of the old covenant and the ceasing of Israel as a special or unique nation to God, the civil and ceremonial laws ended as well. But the moral law is perpetual. It continues because, again, it is concerning the righteousness and the holy character of God. And so the three uses of the law then, the moral law. First, the law shows us our sins so that we might flee to Christ. Secondly, it restrains evil in the world. And third, it is a guide to show us how to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. That third use of the law is what John Calvin calls the principal use of the law. And it means that the law is an instrument to show us God's will. But it's not legalism to keep it, because adhering to it or performing it doesn't save us. It doesn't add anything to the finished work of Christ. It doesn't keep us saved either. It is, it is our way of living in a manner that glorifies the Lord and is pleasing to him. And what born-again person, what spirit-filled person doesn't want to live in a way that is pleasing to God? You know, we, we, we do. We don't do it perfectly. None of us does. And when we don't, we repent and we ask for mercy and grace so that we may do right again. But even that is part of you know, that knowing God's law, so that we're instructed to do that. So it's not legalism to keep the law of God, not for the Christian. Now, we could make the Sabbath legalism if we acted like Old Covenant Israel and thought that the adherence to the law contributed to our salvation. Uh, see Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler, for example, or even just do an online search considering a Shabbat laws today. They are in the same spirit that the Jewish teachers in Jesus' day had. And so according to Shabbat laws, I mean, for example, this would be legalism, you can't take a bath on the Sabbath because you can't warm water. But even more, you simply can't bathe even in cold water. Or if you have a rose, if it's completely open and not in water, you can put it back in the water. But if it's not completely open, if it's still partly closed, you can't take that partly closed rose and put it in water. Why? Because what's going to happen to you in water? It's going to bloom. It's going to open up. right? And so that would be breaking the Shabbat law, they say. I mean, you better make sure all, you have all your flowers vased the day before the sab- Sabbath if you want to be a legalist. That, that is legalism. That's the kind of legalism that we see being practiced in the New Testament when it comes to this commandment. In Israel, uh, the kind of legalism that Jesus wants to free people from. Uh, and then he obviously we see so many times in the New Testament that he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. But of course, he never does. Right. We don't have time to go into all those texts tonight. But again, the, the old covenant in Israel, the Jews, they had a legalistic view of this that, you know, Jesus was warning them of. Even in Israel today, uh, they have special Shabbat elevators that open on every floor. So if you're like in the top floor of a building, you get into an elevator, you're not allowed to push the button to open the door, to choose what floor you're going. To. So you go into the Shabbat elevator and it just cycles and stops on every floor so you can get, go in and go out. That is legalism. But that is not the good and holy legality of this fourth commandment. We'll deal more with this next week when we think of the application of it. Secondly, people say we don't need to keep this commandment because it is not repeated in the New Testament. And honestly, this is just silly. Uh, this is the result of seeing too much uh, discontinuity between the Old and the New Testaments. It, it acts as if the Bible isn't one book. And we know how popular it is today to downplay the connection of the Testaments by Andy Stanley uh, is a huge proponent of that, saying to unhip the Old Testament from the New Testament, even saying recently that the 66 books of the Bible are not needed, basically, to, to know Jesus. Um, it acts, and, and really, if we we're thinking that, that because that we don't need to keep the fourth commandment because the New Testament doesn't repeat it, then what we're saying, in a sense, is that God has changed somehow. Since this is part of the moral law, and the moral law reflects God's holy character which is unchanging which we went over in the catechism in lessons a long long time ago. And also if you think back to that 30th of law I mentioned earlier that would mean that this commandment actually is for us. The moral law continues and is perpetual and it shows us how to glorify God with our lives. So that would mean the fourth commandment would be for us even if it wasn't repeated in the New Testament. But this argument is more complex though because actually it's not the only commandment that isn't repeated in the New Testament. I've heard for years Growing up, or yeah, you know, I wasn't in the church growing up, I, I became involved in the church as a young adult in my 20s, but for a long time in that time, I heard that the fourth commandment uh, was not repeated in the New Testament, and that's the reason why you don't need to keep it. The implication is that the other commandments, all other nine of them are actually repeated. Well, Richard Barcelos says this, he says, do you know that the first four commandments are not repeated in the New Testament, word for word, and neither are the ninth and the tenth? In light of this, no one in their right mind argues that only the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments carry over into the New Testament. and Therefore, are the only ones applicable to Christians. The essence of all 10 commandments carries over into the New Testament. And so the reality is that the first four commandments, as well as the ninth and the 10th commandment, they are all referred to in the New Testament. None of those, none of those four, the first four and 9 and 10, they're not repeated verbatim. They're not repeated word for word in the New Testament. But the dispensationalist, and I think this really is a dispensationalist dispensational argument, um, no time to get into specifics of that doctrine tonight. Uh, just know that if you believe that the fourth commandment isn't repeated in the New Testament, it's because you've learned from a dispensationalist or you might have a dispensationalist belief in that regard. But if someone wants to say that we don't need to keep this commandment because it's not repeated in the New Testament, then if you want to be consistent, you also have to toss out the first three commandments in the last two, nine and ten as well too. And nobody wants to do that, of course. Thirdly, uh, we are in the people say that we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant. That's actually true, of course. I mean it it is true. We are not in the old covenant. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to keep this commandment. Again, think of the three divisions of the law and three uses of the law, the moral law, of which this is a part of. Again that moral law is perpetual, it continues, and we use it to know what God's will is and instructs us on how to act that is true not only in the old covenant but also now here in this new covenant we are all we understand right that we are professing faith in christ we are in the new what's called the new covenant that's why we take the the lord's supper um when we do because it's the it's the sign and the it's the ordinance or the sacrament of that covenant that proclaims new covenant truths uh, and even more it's not as if the new covenant didn't exist during the time of the old covenant Okay. Again, we need to assume some things that the London Baptist Confession of Faith exp- explains uh, using scripture in its explanation of Scripture. But the new covenant, what we see, is and as the Second London Confession explains this: the new covenant is the covenant of grace revealed. The covenant of grace is the is the means by which anyone is saved ever. That's the only way people are saved through the covenant of grace. is through God's gracious act of saving sinners the covenant of grace was operable from the garden on and it was revealed in types and shadows and everyone who was ever saved began from adam on from 4 ish years before the cross they were all saved by virtue of the covenant of grace what jesus would eventually do his righteous life his atoning death on the cross his resurrection and his ascension and so even though we are in the new covenant now and not in the old covenant Praise God, that's the case. The worst thing that we can do is try to put ourselves back under the old covenant where law and gospel are easily confused and where we have temporal blessing based upon our obedience, which who in here thinks that they are good enough to receive blessing from God, even as a Christian, that he could demand it from him, not me. But even though we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant, the fourth commandment is still for us. It was four people who were saved the exact same way as us, even though they were also in the Old Covenant at that time. They looked forward to the cross, whereas we look back. And we both have this fourth commandment before us for our good. That said, uh, there is a difference between the covenants. There is a difference in the day that the Sabbath is observed. Properly speaking, we would say that the specific day of Sabbath observance is a positive law, meaning that it can be changed by the lawgiver when the covenant is over. So think, for example, the tree in the garden. A covenant that God made with Adam there is is past, it's over, and its results last, but there is no tree now by which any of us can avoid and live forever for doing so. One day there will be no more baptisms, or no no more taking of the Lord's Supper, when the new covenant is consummated. Those are positive laws. They can be abrogated, they can come to an end. Well, the day being the last day of the week, Saturday, That was ended, it was abrogated and moved from Saturday to Sunday in the New Covenant. So we'll come back to question 63, as we consider why we keep the Sabbath, to briefly consider question 64, which says this. Question 64 in the Catechism is, which day of the seven has God appointed to be a weekly Sabbath? And the answer is, before the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since, to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. The answer catechism gives is pretty clear, I would think. The Sabbath used to be Saturday in the time of the Old Covenant. Well, we would call it Saturday in the time of the Old Covenant. But now, in the time of the New Covenant, in the time in which the church is identified with the New Covenant, it has been moved to Sunday, the first day of the week. And you can see that the catechism lists a lot of proof texts here. I mean, that's especially in consideration of past catechism questions. There haven't been usually a lot of proof texts associated with the answers given, but here they give quite a bit. Um, we don't have time to consider them all but you can look at them later if you like but they're all dealing with an aspect of worshiping God on a day which God instructs plus uh, Pastor Nick spoke this morning about why the saints gathered on the first day they did so because the first day of, of the week the day after the Old Covenant Sabbath that was the day that Jesus rose from the grave and so the Christian Sabbath is often called the Lord's Day because it is the day that the Lord rose from the grave the resurrection is the most significant event in the in history since the fall and jesus being raised on that first day impacted the way that god's people observed the sabbath god changed it he changed it from being the last day of the week to that first day of the week and you see that in matthew 28 1 and luke 24 1 which the catechism cites. that's talking about how jesus rose on the first day and then many of those other texts you see in the list there those new testament verses listed in the catechism they are showing by way of description that the church gathered to worship God on the first day of the week. It's interesting. The New Testament doesn't actually clearly say that the day was moved, but it's the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament that it that it is the case. And again, Nick already mentioned this morning a lot about the uh, the Sabbath being on the first day of the week, because 1 Corinthians 16, where the collection was gathered on the first day, that was when the saints had, were coming together. So we won't rehash all that again. The church throughout history has overwhelmingly realized and affirmed this, the church, from the time of the apostles, if you were to look into first, to primary sources from the early church, they are all worshiping on what we now call Sunday, on the Lord's Day. That became the day in which the church gathered. It's overwhelmingly realized from this, uh, from the, the, because the resurrection of Jesus, which leads to the ascension, um, and they're also, excuse me, what I mean to say is that they're all doing this in light of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus leads to the ascension, and the ascension means that he will also come again. And it wasn't until a so-called prophetess by the name of Ellen White that, that much doubt uh, arose of this uh, first day Sabbath keeping. Ellen White uh, is the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, and they teach that the church is wrong on this matter, and that we still need to worship on Saturday. And she prophesied that Jesus would return in 1888, actually, but when he didn't, she claimed that he only returned spiritually and that a physical return will come later. And But the reason why he didn't return physically was because much of the church didn't follow the dietary laws, and they were worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. Ellen White is a classic legalist, unfortunately. Um, so
1: that was his one and a half comment?
0: I guess. There's some other similarities with dispensationalism even in that too. But we don't want to go on that rabbit trail too much. Right now. Um, Ellen Why was a false teacher. And to be clear, the right day to observe the Sabbath is on Sunday, the first day of the week. Again, that's the day that Christ rose from the grave. And we worship now in light of redemption and not in light of creation. So, more on that. Let's go back to sixty-three as we consider more of the why we keep it. So we can consider this notion of keeping it in light of redemption. So, two reasons to think of why we keep it. Number one Because God made it holy. we keep the Sabbath because God made it holy. Look at verse 8 in Exodus 20. Verse 8, it's on your outline in Exodus uh, 20 at least as well, because it's the, the answer to question 62 is the passage. So, we are told that God desires for us to keep it holy, right in, the very, right in verse 8, right in the very beginning. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then skip over verse 9, 10. We'll get there, Lord willing, next week. But look at verse 11. The Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. We keep the Sabbath because God made it holy. We're doing the same thing with the fourth commandment that we did with the first three. And there's actually a pattern to notice here. So open if you're not at Exodus 20, if you were just looking at your catechism, look at Exodus 20 in your Bible. Uh, You have the preface to the commandments back in verse 2, and then the first commandment. And so we see this pattern developing from there, where first in the preface it says, I am, and then it leads to the first commandment, where we have a therefore you shall act. In in this specific way, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Then the second commandment, we read, you have, or you you shall, followed by, you shall not. Or no, excuse me. First you have, you shall not, followed by, because I am, because he is God. Then the third commandment you see, you shall not, followed by, the Lord will not. And then now in this commandment we see, you shall keep it holy, followed by, the Lord will. Which we read in verse 11, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. There's a pattern. We are keeping the fourth commandment in step with the other commandments as well. We're applying the same hermeneutic to it as we do with the previous commandments. We don't just stop with this commandment as so many people like us would like us to. We keep it because God made it holy and he instructs us to keep it. Secondly, we keep it because God made everything. Look at verse 11 in Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We keep the Sabbath because God made everything. It was established in light of creation. Turn back to Genesis two. Genesis two, look at verse one through three. By the way, maybe this is too much of a rabbit trail. Maybe we can get to it with um, questioning time, but the seven-day week, and I'll save part of this for next time, too. Actually, you know what? I'm going to save it for next time just because of the time. So I have something juicy. That will be for next week. Are you teaching next week? Yes. I have something, something juicy. So the keeping – if we want to say that the days of the week are not actual days and they're like ages or time spans, we would destroy the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment would be nothing. So so we'll deal with that next time. But for sake, for sake of time. So, Genesis 2, 1-3. through three. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Right? So, it's quoting that passage there from Genesis 2. Uh, work friends, is not bad. We've talked about this before at this congregation. Work is something that is good. But even before the fall, there was work. God worked in six days to create everything. There is nothing wrong with work. In the new creation, we are certainly going to work. We're going to use the gifting that God gives us to bring glory unto his name. Work was cursed in the fall, but work is is good. And I think when we misunderstand work, we tend to misunderstand the Sabbath too. One of the things that people often say about the Sabbath is, oh, we're supposed to be this day of rest. And then we import our human under- our modern American understanding of what rest is and, and work is. So we, we sometimes what we do is when we misunderstand what work is rightly, then we're going to also make an error on what the Sabbath is. And so when you work, and God gives you six days. This is part application, but I can't, I can't avoid it, I guess. So when, when you, when you work, you 're not supposed to overwork yourself to death on six days so that you have then no energy to come to church and to worship God on, this, on the, that um, first day of the week as it starts over. You have six days to work and you're supposed to, and you're supposed to do so in such a way that trust the Lord so that you can care for your family and do things that would give God honor and glory, but you're not supposed to then just be totally wiped out so that you can't go to church in the morning you should you should work a good amount, trusting that the Lord is going to provide for you so that you are then still have, so you're able to be energized and come to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. And, and really, when you invest, I think, the time and effort into worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, it's really going to set you up to, to work the rest of the week, to so be filled with the, the means of grace and the encouragement and admonishment from other brothers and sisters as you go into the work week. And you, again, you don't overdo it, and so then you have to rest in the sense of where you're like sleeping and falling. But no, the rest that we're supposed to be is supposed to be entailed on the Sabbath. And again, we'll get into it next week. Is actually doing things. It's not taking a nap, even though I know I like to do that. You know, after after church, because I mean it is exhausting. And there's nothing wrong with a nap. We'll talk about that again next time. But we're supposed to be caught up in acts of you know wor- of good works and. Um, worshiping the Lord. So we'll get to some of that next time. But note, what we see in Genesis 2, what we see in Exodus 20, that the Sabbath is rooted in creation. But even before the law was given, given you realize that it existed, right? I mean, we see it clearly in the example of creation. Six days God worked on the seventh, he rest. I'll save this for next week. But the the way I heard this from Bodie Bauckham, the way that we identify a, a week is really significant. We'll save that for next week too. Um, but... <laughs> I know. So let's look at Genesis 4 though. Yeah, I'll remember myself. You don't need to. Genesis 4. Okay, the Sabbath, this command to keep the Sabbath that existed even before Sinai is what I'm wanting to say. We see it modeled by God himself. Look at Genesis 4 being at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So what's happening in the course of time? People are gathering to worship, right? One's doing it rightly, one is not doing it rightly, one's breaking the second commandment, one is not breaking the second commandment. But the literal translation of the phrase, in the course of time, is at the end of days. The most likely and reasonable meaning of this phrase is at the end of, you know, seven days. It strongly suggests that the pattern of the Sabbath was known about and practiced long before Sinai. Or flip over to Exodus 16, verse 4. We're not going to, verse 4 through 30 deals with this. We're not going to read all those verses. But Let me read verse 4 in Exodus 16. Verse 4 says, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So, what chapter of Exodus was the law given? 20? 20. What chapter is this that we just read? 16. This is before the giving of the law, right? And then in verse 23 in in chapter 16, the same chapter. Oops. 23. And he, he said to them, "'This is what the Lord has commanded. "'Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, "'a holy Sabbath to the Lord.'" Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept to the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning, and Moses commanded them, and it, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. So God is providing for this Sabbath that he wants them to observe. Uh, Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord, and you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather but on the seventh day, which is Sabbath, there will be none. And then on the seventh day, we read in verse 27, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And then verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? He hasn't even revealed them to the people yet. That's coming later. And it says, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let not one go out of the place on the seventh day. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. The most reasonable interpretation of this passage is that the Sabbath was an institution that the Israelites would have already been familiar with, which demonstrates that the Sabbath was known about and practiced long before Sinai. And you actually can do that same thing with all the Ten Commandments. Every single of of the Ten Commandments is the Decalogue, the summary of morality, of the moral law. They are all observed before the giving of the law in Exodus 20. Have you ever... Notice, by chance, that when Israel received the law, they weren't surprised by any of it. They never said anything like, wow, I had no idea I shouldn't kill anybody. Or, I had no idea that adultery was wrong. They never said anything like that. They didn't say anything like that about the Sabbath either. They weren't surprised by it at all. Their sin kept them from properly observing it, just like our sin interferes with all law-keeping as well. But it was thoroughly known to them. And I suspect that it is equally known to us as well, even though, again, so many people today want to say the fourth commandment is not for us. But the same issues before us. Our sin stops us from seeing that properly. But we keep the Sabbath because God made it holy. He made everything as well. And even one step further, we keep it because God redeemed us. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 15, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 5. That's the second telling of the Decalogue. Who wrote Exodus? Moses, same author, wrote Deuteronomy. Moses again. Uh, But notice the change in the text. What were you saying, Christine? Anything? Nothing? Deuteronomy chapter 5?
2: That was what it was. I couldn't remember. remember. Deuteronomy
0: 5. I I did not read your mind there, so I was just guessing while I threw those things out. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Okay, so this is the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You see, the weekly Sabbath points to a reality greater than creation even. It points to the salvation of our bodies and soul all because of the work of Christ. So we observe it now on the first day rather than the seventh. That's what the redemption of Israel from Egypt showed us, right? The, the redemption of Israel from Egypt was a true event, it happened, but it was a type and it prefigured the redemption we have in Christ. The Passover meal, you know, it, it told of what Christ would do when when Pharaoh refused to let go of Israel and the angel of death passes over all of the houses that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. The firstborn was killed, but all of those whose doorposts were covered by the blood of the lamb, they were spared. They lived. Same thing. At first, that was it. Truly happened, but it was also prefiguring and it was a type of what Jesus would accomplish. So just so that all of us who are covered by the blood of Christ don't die as well, from we're not we don't suffer under God's wrath. That's the point of Hebrews 4, by the way, as well. There it joins the notion of the Sabbath in light of redemption by looking at it from Moses to David and pointing forward to to us even, that we have the Sabbath rest, that we keep the Sabbath, friends, because it is what God desires us to do. God made it holy. And next week, we'll consider more detail how to keep it. Okay, One day out of seven, and we'll talk about acts of necessity and mercy, and we'll try to get into those things. Okay. So a little bit, I told you I was going long, but any um, questions, comments, because I could try to make more clear. Again, we are dealing with the same topic again next week in light of three different questions. But. Huh. Yeah, no one at all.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, or even think even before Joseph, right? Uh, Abraham and Sarah are going through, yeah, through the wilderness. They're on the way to to the land that God is promising them. And who is what's his name? I forget, it starts with a, the. It might be. It might be. Um, but anyways, he sees that she's pretty and takes her as his wife, but God reveals to him in a dream that he shouldn't do it. And it's like, obviously, they had an understanding of not committing adultery even before then, or Cain and Abel. I mean, there's murder. They're, they're all addressed even before then. Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely, God is sovereign over sin. Yes, Sheree?
2: Yeah. Sure, sure. Would the would old
0: covenant so precede the giving of the 10 commandments? question is would the old covenant precede the giving of the 10 commandments? Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Well, I think it's it's a read. So the question is for the recording purposes question is why would you, why would people want to say that um, we don't have to keep this command because we're not in the old covenant and this is specifically attached to the old covenant. Well, it's simply, it's a failure on their part to understand that it existed even before the old covenant. All right. So that's, that's part of our response to them is to show that this actually existed even before the old covenant. The old covenant is, some people describe it differently. And so I would hold the position of the old covenant is when like when the letter to the Hebrews talks about the old covenant, that it is a summary. It's specifically speaking of the Mosaic covenant, but really it's a summary of the covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, and David, the, the covenants that are associated with the nation of Israel specifically, uh, which were ultimately geared towards the bringing to the world the Messiah. The title, the Christ,
2: <laughs> Johnny. The comment about the Jews are to to Yeah. We don't know, like, maybe their specific
1: motivation for, Clearly, yeah. it's their tradition of how to,
2: how to, how
1: how to, how to, how to, how
0: yeah, so okay, so you're wanting to say that to to say.
1: Yeah. So trying to decouple interpretation.
0: So you're saying, I'm trying to rehash your question so the request. You want to say that the someone who's not united to Christ and who's still placing themselves under the old covenant, their interpretation of the fourth commandment would not which which requires things that God didn't say to do is not legalism. That that's too harsh of a thing to say. And so I would say that I don't think that it is, because I think that's the heart of actually the issue. As to why they, they tried to chastise Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Why they um why they wanted him to, you know, be put to death because they had added all these extra rules because in them, they believed that the keeping of the law was actually meritorious unto their standing before God. Hence, the rich young ruler, who didn't have time to read the text, he goes up to Jesus and he says to him, good master, what must I do to to have eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? So, there is a, so I understand there are some people within Christendom today that want to say that we have misunderstood the Jews and their and their keeping and their view of the um the law and their relationship to it, but I would just reject that view. I don't think that is that is again we're coming to this as a with the, with presuppositions that are set forth in the Second London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, the previous Catechism questions, and what we the interpretation of Scripture put forward there, which I which I agree at least is right, is that the Jews were viewing the law as a means of. They're standing before God, and it's tricky because it really was within the old covenant temporally. The Deuteronomy says that you know if you are faithful to keep all these laws, you'll be blessed in the land. If you break them, you'll be cursed. But there's this weird overlap where in which the old covenant had was still types and shadows was pointed to eternal realities of justification uh, mixed with the present realities, and that's why I said it's not good for us to be in the old covenant today because. We don't want to be in a covenant with God that is like like America right now, man, we would have we lost God's blessing from the very first day, right if if that was the case but so so, yeah, so I know that's like, like that uh, the view that you're saying right would be popularized by right, new perspectives on Paul type sort of thing
1: okay yeah.
0: You're doing it. This is the next week question. <laughs> I know. I'm saying that should be yeah, those should be conscious so if a, if a Christian wants to I don't want to do any laundry on Lord's day, you know they're free to make that decision, but they shouldn't impose that upon others and so a Shabbat elevator you're imposing that upon others and such that now you have to stop at every single floor you know you can't just go through so that's a legalistic motive I think and I'm just saying
1: People may be doing for good or reasons and then others may strongly judge them. to So whether it's true or not, I think it was secondary, but it was just more it, it does tie to uh, again, like right, our specific applications of that, right? And then having other folks judge that and make sure as
2: being as being legalistic Okay, Yeah, yeah. Sure. John?
1: Yeah. The, Because kind of with some we can't really interpret the scriptures based on how other people things, Right? If, if somebody else has said, as for me in my house, there's no gas, we make it society. That's not the actual hermeneutic itself, right? Mm-hmm.
0: It's you a personal application. It. application,
1: right? Right. And right. You don't know. You don't within this world, going back from to the Jews beyond, they were. There were,
2: you know, oh, yeah. there the
1: they were adding all these traditions, right? And Jesus came in and just destroyed that understanding. And, and it goes back to Adam, right? So I think uh, I love how you simplified it. When you think of Shabbat in and, and, and Hebrew with just the verb simply meaning just to cease, right? And so I like how you break down the different convictions not trying to reach too far in the next week, but it, just, it really helps me to understand that there's a general understanding that we're to gather, we're to worship, we're to set aside. We're to make it a priority. All those other intangibles and we can we get into all of that? But can we first agree on that? Yeah. I think if we first, if we can agree on that, <coughs> you know, people will kind of see a little more unity around. Well, is it a priority to get together for worship? Sure. Um, and then we can, then I think
0: the of necessity and mercy yeah it's hard to not talk about the application of this because that's really where all the debate in our culture and for centuries of cultures have really hinged to i um i like how you're framing that and I, I would agree to say that even so like in the sense of a shabbat elevator um if it is one Jewish, if it is one person's conviction that, hey, for me and my family, we're not going to use the elevator on the stage because we feel like that's not a way in which we can glorify God. Okay, that's our personal conviction. That's up to their conscience. They're fine. But once you make it a law for all society or for all the whole group, that there, I think, is legalism because it becomes a new law that we don't see in Scripture, that we don't see God clearly entailing it in that manner. Now we can even think of the example that was given before the Sabbath uh, was given on si- in Sinai. Um, they were allowed to they were allowed to catch as many pheasants as they needed, and they would have enough to be left or two days worth to be left over. Um, that's clearly detailed in Scripture, so we know that that's not legalism either, right? That's what God wanted. That that's 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 legality. That's legal. Um, but if they to also say, well, you know what, we can't gather any. Um, well, they, they, the point in Israel in the wilderness is they didn't have anything else either, right? But, you know, they if they were to take a – if they were to say we can't have any, you know, whatever you have, eat with quail, uh, whatever, you know, side so, you have, manna, right? Manna, manna, manna quail. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> French rice. Um, to put imposes on on things like that that God didn't mention would then be – and to, for the whole group whole community would then be legalism, neo nomanism And maybe it's not – maybe they wouldn't. I think somewhere at the root they would believe that it was salvific. I would think that it, it, it's it, 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 their snake. For
1: sure. Yeah. Let's, let's not be too greedy for how much is
0: too greedy, right? Yeah. Let's, let's work a little bit harder for how much is harder. So it's just human nature to kind of define that, like clarify. Yeah. Henry.
1: If we're not supposed to work on Sundays. What about preaching?
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, next week, question. <laughs>
3: well,
0: that's what I'm saying. Again, I think we, we impose our Western mindset of what rest is and what work is. We're supposed to do works unto the Lord, consisting of worship and glorifying Him, which preaching that is, right? So we, we do preach. Yes, Ross. But good question. That's. Mentioned, huh? So you know,
2: when I when I look at where the commandments are mentioned, you also should look at the context. And then when you read in in, uh, in James ten, and eleven, uh whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point become accountable for all of it for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law (laughs) so this is an explanation that draws in the commandments but the context isn't let me tell you again The law said do not murder, (laughs) so I'm telling you in the New Testament, do not murder. That is not the context of that passage. The same thing in in Romans 13, uh, 9 to the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love the neighbor of yourself. So again, we are looking at the commandments as being included in an argument but the commandments are not being restated specifically for the sake of me telling you look I for the sake not...
0: of establishing them again yeah right yeah,
2: yeah. Not, not reestablishing them and you know maybe the only other time is sermon on the mount you know you shall have you, you shall you have heard, you have heard, heard it was you said heard it say, yeah huh? look upon a woman with lustful intent, you have you know, right. committed adultery.
0: He wasn't um, seeking to reestablish the use of the law in that moment either. Yeah, even,
2: what right? it is, it's an embellishment. It doesn't get rid of the law. It's, it says, that stands, but um, don't take it legalistically. Right. Um, you know, your have that's the
1: strength of the Sagittarius. Yeah. It
3: begs uh, an explanation,
0: right? Have we all heard here people say that we don't keep the fourth man because it's not repeated in the New Testament is that something we've all heard? Yeah. No. I never
2: heard that. I've heard it lie. I don't remember it. Yeah.
1: When you say though like he was four, it actually is repeated. Uh it's referred to, right? It's
0: obviously referred to. Yeah, I think so. What they say is not repeated word for word, but it's de- It's a weird argument. I'm telling you, I'm surprised you've been in church a long time. I'm surprised you haven't heard it before. But you're in a Presbyterian church, who are the covenant theology, and so you didn't you weren't exposed to it. I think it's it's primarily a dispensational trait, I believe. Yeah. which big words Dispa- I don't <laughs> dispensationalism good i'm glad you have this question dispensationalism is a view popularized by a man named darby or c.s Schofield in the Schofield reference bible and it's a basically a way of looking at all the scriptures it says that god divided the course of history into different dispensations and these dispensations don't interact really they're built on top of each other ultimately teaches that there's two people of god and in very bad situations that there's two ways of salvation it's the word. The dispensation word. is just a time so dispensation is actually in covenant theology as well a dispensation is a period of time okay. so there's seven dispensations in dispensationalism or seven twelve
3: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, but and it, but it's a way of looking at it's a hermeneutics way of looking at all of the Bible. Yeah, I know what hermeneutics
1: is because
0: I Good.
3: <laughs> Stretching your understanding of the Bible in periods of time rather than a covenant. Yes, then very. thank you. And even though they
0: hinge on those covenants too, right? So they they view dispensational views the church almost as plan B. And so Israel is plan A. And the church is an afterthought almost that is going to be used to to bring. Right, yeah. Yeah.
2: It's
0: a parenthesis. A parenthesis is the word that you like to use, yes. Do
2: that? Hey, it's Noel?
0: Yes. Nick's middle name. Oh, okay. So the entire, the civil law is properly speaking not in effect. Right? The civil law was unique to the nation of Israel. Now, the civil law, even the ceremonial law, was all moral. Right, None of it is immoral. But it was specifically given to the nation of Israel as they would be God's representatives, kind of like a second Adam, um, and, and to live in this promised land, of Canaan, which is the type of the new heavens and the new earth. And they were supposed to drive out all the inhabitants. And they were supposed to be, after they drove out these inhabitants, which is a picture of God's judgment, they were to be the way that they lived was to be different than the worlds before them, uh, the the worlds surrounding them. And so all those laws are good. They're all fine. But they're not binding on us as a church. Because no specific nation is in a covenant with God like Israel was. We are all ran by, um, you know, Romans 13 talks about God giving civil authorities, which are his deacons, he says. And they have a specific job to um, uphold righteousness and to punish wickedness when it happens but no nation america is not like israel 2.0 i can maybe even share this um the right now the situation with the ukraine and russia for example um i see like a lot and and i i would feel, I'd feel i'm sympathetic because how would i feel if i was living in a place where bombs were coming down and like, I would be praying for God to, uh, this maybe goes beyond what you were saying, but I understand that. But I'd be praying for God to, you know, have victory for us. But probably speaking, Ukraine is not like Israel. There are Christians in Russia. There are Christians in the Ukraine as well. There are Christians in every nation, you know, God's gospel is spread to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so only only Israel, the nation of Israel was the only nation in the history of nations that was in this unique covenant with God by which God was promising to defend them and to, to bless them. No other nation, America's not like America's not that. You know, we are there are Christians in America. There are Christians in South America and Canada. So we are Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The laws in Israel specifically, along with ceremonial laws, existed for that nation in that time period. But the old covenant is over. Hebrews 8 talks about it as passing away. I would say that it was officially over when the temple was destroyed, because at that point there's no um, even. I mean, the first temple was like the start of it, almost like in an already not yet situation. And they rebuilt the temple um, with Nehemiah and Ezra in that time period, but it never reached the glory of the first temple even. And when that temple was gone, destroyed, and sacked by Rome by Rome in 70 AD, um, you know, the nation of Israel disappeared, and then dispensationalism in the 1960s, and Israel as a nation was recovered. And But I mean, that Israel that exists as a nation today is not in the Old Covenant. The, the Old Covenant doesn't exist anymore. Uh, those laws, again, were specific to the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. Now, they're all good. Uh, we don't have any parents. For the, there's some weird ones that what we do, what we want to say about them is that they are case laws. We could, We would be wise to implement them, but they're not binding. So here's here's. and I can finally get to your question. Now that I've said all this, I think it through my head. We are not as a nation promised to be blessed for adherence to keeping those laws. We should, they're good, they're right, but it might be God's will that even if we are trying to um, keep these laws, that he might bring judgment upon us because nobody's keeping them perfectly. And if you think of it, like even in history past, God would raise up Assyria to bring them against Israel when they weren't doing it. But did Israel, was Assyria following God's laws? Did they deserve his blessing in that so that their boundaries would grow? They weren't even keeping those civil laws. But they, they weren't. It was all happening according to God's will. And so the civil laws are not binding to us today. although well, they are good. But what do we mean by binding? You know, are we going to be blessed if we keep them? that's one of the I did say in the sermon even too was that the point of the law isn't to show us how to have a good life even though it often will happen if we do that the point of the law is to show us god's holy character and righteousness because we can only be saved by the gospel and our our good works will glorify him we should do them but even even the most faithful christians sometimes don't have the best lives according to our standards right think about all the apostles who were killed think about the um the the countless number of martyrs. These these are people trying to be obedient to God's law and yet their lives are cut short, but only from our point because really they're ushered into glory where they are reigning with Christ and even we are reigning now with Christ as well too, but they're ushered into eternal life. So, not binding. That's our theonomy question. I know, that began some pushback. (laughs) That was a (laughs)
3: remarkably long
0: I try, I try i <laughs> try thanks did that make sense noel is that did i ramble for too long <laughs> okay <laughs> sure the uh okay so you have to put the paraplete on the house right so if you have, you have the roof the office spend time on the roof you have to have a fence on your roof if you don't have a fence on the roof then if somebody falls off your roof and dies you're in trouble for it but if you have a fence you're okay so that would be an example now we might say modern application is you know, it's a very good idea for us to have fences around our poles. It's like negligence, right? Yeah. But again, the, the
2: damage some, somebody else.
0: yeah. Or if you have a, if you're, if you're swinging an ax and the ax head flies off and hits somebody, you know, if um, there's penalty associated with that or not. So again, it's not manslaughter. You have to run to this, you know, uh, man- city, right? You've read about, you read about it recently, right? Sanctuary cities. sanctuary cities. So they have these laws that existed in a civil context, which, are, again, are, are wise. They're from God. They're definitely good. But we are not as a nation blessed or cursed for keeping them or not keeping them.
3: It might be helpful also to think about it, the, the fact that the 10, we saw evidence of all the 10 before the 10 were ratified with the 10, with the, yeah, the commandments, but the civil law, you don't see the same uh, uh, precursing of their revelation. So before they were revealed to Israel, you didn't see like evidence that they were all being kept from the nations. They came with that new, with that old covenant. And then when that old covenant came to a conclusion, they were abrogated. So you don't necessarily have to follow those things anymore. They're, they're there for wisdom. But there is an Israel now in that sense, a national Israel, to which they would apply. Yeah.
1: Can I just like just another pushback or just an
2: observation? Sure. I
1: wouldn't I wouldn't hyper the Bible, not really married to either of them. I know for economies of they don't they don't really address all the issues, but I think there is wisdom like you said There are right? certain things within the civil law that we did not like Paul said I would not have known standard for the law, right? Yeah. Well, no one in this room is going to advocate for bestiality, right? And then there's the civil codes in there, especially yeah. in Leviticus, right? There's a lot of a lot of the moral aspects that we have from a moral law derived right? that are in the um, civil law.
0: Right? Well,
1: um, sorcery, witchcraft, that type of stuff, mm-hmm. necromancy. There's um, a lot of that stuff where which, which I don't think God has ever since I've abrogated that gives us more mm-hmm. detail.
0: Yeah, like bestiality, right? That's would fall under the command to not commit adultery. You know, so, so there's applications of the law. There. But the main thing to, to note, and so, uh, yeah, you're right. None of us want in this room want to affirm necromancy right. or practicing magic. But it's not because those laws are binding to us in a sense that our nation will be blessed if we don't do them.
1: Right, but they're still violence and when we preach the gospel, that they never repent that don't have Christ, they're gonna be judged by it. all all everything that's moral, uh any moral aspect of law, whether they know about it or not, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we would make the case too for like in fact the Westminster larger catechism, I think would say that like magic and stuff like that is essentially it's it's worship divination. And so that would follow the breaking the second commandment in doing that. So it's all of the civil laws, they flow out of the decalogue.
1: Yeah, see and I never knew that until we used to get into our reton discussions because I would give them questions with John and Saturday. Yeah. And they just didn't know how to articulate it that way. to where you when you made that comment, it helped me understand, okay, so here's why where the intersection is and here's why you know, it seemed more accurate than what you're saying that they flow out of this. So, you know, whether you have them or not, you know. You know the light know. of,
0: yeah. yeah. The light of nature to tell us that bestiality is wrong, right? But that's the Romans 2. But it's, um, natural law. it's natural law, but it's polluted because of our nature being fallen. So it's great that God spelled it out for us clear and special revelation. We thank him and we praise him for that. But even if he didn't, it would still be,
1: well,
2: right. Yeah, Cohen?
0: you wait until the high priest there either pardons you or passes away. And so, so because the, the issue is, they didn't have. If you look through the nation of Israel, they don't have like police. They don't have a you know a supreme court like we do. And so God invented this system for them so that if someone accidentally killed someone, they wouldn't be put to death for that if they were able to get to this place. And God is the God who is in control of all things, the God of providence. And so properly speaking, if they made it to that city of refuge, well, that's God's providential hand bringing them to it even. And if they didn't, well then, you know, it's God's will if they die. But it, it was a means of, Monitoring justice within this tribal community. We don't have that today, right? You, if, if you accidentally killed someone today, you would get arrested, and you would be put before a court, and they would then determine if you were, you know, if it was an accident or not. But they didn't have that system set up then.
1: Like the just- yeah.
0: yeah, we'll go three first, and then you. Unless yours is based on his, it's not okay. Sri Can you define <laughs> reconstructionism. So theonomy simply at the base level means God's law, but it, but really theonomy, as is talked to talked about today, is a view of covenant theology that says that the civil laws in Israel are what we need right now. And that, and so they seek to implement them in society, and so it's reconstruct society. Reconstructionism, so like R.J. Rushdoony, it's probably a guy Doug Wilson, Gary North. Um, those are you know uh, Apologia, the guys over there. Apologia, they're theonomists, speaking. They tend to be post-millennial with their eschatology as well, but it just basically means that they they fail to. They say that they're reformed, so Westminster, Westminsterian, or London Baptist Confession, but they say that the civil law was not. They, they they disagree with the divisions of the law, which the confessions put forward, and so they say the civil law has not been abrogated because the civil law still is applicable for the church today. And the reason that the church is in so much trouble today is because we're not implementing the civil law, is what they say.
2: So then they would say that an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, still.
0: They would say they would say the general equity of those laws. So we'll say not exactly that. A lot of <laughs> yeah. They yeah, there's, there's differences within them. Sometimes they get into this thing called federal vision as well too, which then modifies justification. So there's a lot that goes into it. I'm not a fan of Recon or God's Law I love, but not that in the sense that it is what um, is going to you know, make society great. I'll, I'll, let's say right now I become the president and I say, you know what? We are implementing all these laws. Well, it's not going to matter because you have all these wicked, rebellious sinners living in the land. Anyways, what they need is regeneration. They need heart change. And the theonomists will agree to that as well, of course. But they still want to put that there. Oh, yeah. For sure. The law is above us all. Right. Mm-hmm. I think
1: where they go wrong with that is they make it the mission of the church over the gospel.
0: Yeah. That's the danger. Now, If you say that to them, they'll say, no, 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 we're not doing that. But that's the danger of it. Yeah, John? <laughs> oh, sorry, Adam. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought he was going on. <laughs> okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Saturday evening right? do we understand that? yeah, I know. That
2: is
1: yeah. I know.
2: Adam.
3: Should we punish Marcelino for practicing magic?
0: Wow, very specific. I think he's practicing. He's the only one who does magic. I think he's doing sleight of hand. I don't think he's doing any divination <laughs> where he's trying to channel spirits. But way to show your fundamentalism. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your sleight of hand tricks, Marcelino. That's on, it's going to go on the Internet. So, Anything else? Good way to end. Oh, Jake, go ahead. <laughs> <Tonya>. <laughs> Me too. I got my kids. My wife is going to be upset. Go
2: ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, ceremonial. They're all moral, right? Ceremonial laws. So think of like, why do today we don't come to church and we don't slaughter a bull or a goat? That's part of the ceremonial laws. Why don't we do, uh, you know, incense offerings and things like that? Those part of the ceremonial laws. If that, If today, if I got leprosy, I don't have to go dip myself in the Jordan seven times. Uh, I would go to the hospital, right? Um, those were ceremonial laws, civil laws for the nation of Israel, and the, and the moral law meaning the summary of the, the of the Decalogue. So they're all related in the sense that they were all given to the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. We read about it at the end of Exodus, at Exodus 20 on, and it's detailed more in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as well too. So they're all related in that sense that they were given to the nation of Israel through Moses. They're all moral. They're all, in other words, good and holy. But those aspects of it, the ceremonial, civil, they were fulfilled in Christ. Christ came into this world, not like out of nowhere, but he came as a Jew from the line of Judah. And, you know, born in Bethlehem, born under the law is what we read. He was faithful to all those laws. Because Israel couldn't keep them. And so Jesus is, is like the faithful Israel, in other words. And he goes, um, he doesn't have any sin, and he goes to the cross there. Not because he earned it, because you know, the penalty, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned. Yet he goes to the cross to pay the penalty that all who believe um, would have.
3: And you have New Testament uh, evidence that those things have been abrogated. So you do have such as like... In the book of Acts, when Peter is told to eat of things yeah. that before they weren't allowed to eat, them, so there's a definite change there. You have uh, the Galatian situation and Acts 15 where they determine you don't have to be circumcised anymore. So the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the truer and the greater priest and sacrifice, and so all those things that that kind of point forward to Christ. We don't need those things anymore because we have Christ. So there's it's not just something that comes out of thin air. It's you see the New Testament
1: yeah.
0: Check out, I think it's chapter 22 in the Lennon Baptist Confession. It's on the law, I believe. I'm
1: just going to say,
2: I think it's a question behind your question. It's a few people who it. I don't understand what I'm going to say. I guess you did answer but is it the same thing that we were talking about earlier, how you take the general equity of that? Like, yeah.
0: Well, we're not commanded, I guess, in Scripture to take the general equity of the civil law and to apply it. Like that's not like nowhere you'll never read that that phrase in the New Testament anywhere. But nevertheless, you know the way that we do theology is we study the Scripture and we, you know, sometimes there's necessary consequence. Sometimes that's a that's a strange phrase because that's how our Presbyterians. Brothers um, will say that they want to baptize babies. They'll say it's a necessary consequence, but general equity, a necessary consequence, yeah, of what that study of of, study, of the study of scripture, for example. So again, it, it would be good and right, you know, to take the general equity of it um, as in as a standard, but it's not going to. But remember the the specific moral civil this and ceremonial existed within the nation of israel in which god was their king initially until they demanded for a king and they got a human king but that was part of god's will so because jesus is prophet priest and king he reigns as the god man and so it's wise to take the general equity of those civil laws and to apply apply them to our lives well again for example if you own a pool ever it'd be a good idea for you to put a fence around it because you know you don't want to have a kid wanders out there or something and into it, that would be tragic, um, but you're not, you know, you're blood. You're not going to be, you're not going to cause God's wrath to come upon you, um, because you failed to keep the civil law. Because we, for us as Christians, Romans six one is really clear. There's no condemnation for those. Or Romans eight one. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans five one. We have peace with God now, uh, because of Christ and what. He has done so, in the old covenant context, the civil law, the ceremonial law, if they didn't keep those right, they would bring judgment upon them. We still get disciplined now as Christians by God, when we don't when we keep his law perfectly and and rightly, but his discipline is a means of sanctifying us. It's not his wrath against us, it's his love for us. It's complex yeah. anything else super late. <laughs>
1: remember
0: those times when we finished at 7:30. Let's wrap it up Pray briefly. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. This is a very difficult topic, God, and we we know that we can't figure it all out perfectly. You know that good brothers and sisters have disagreed on these things over time, so we pray that you would help us though to grow and to understand what your word says. Be merciful to us, Lord. Grant us humility, grant us meekness as we approach your word. We want to handle it rightly that you might be glorified. And so, help us, Lord, to believe what your word says, and to act um, based on what is revealed. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.